KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia with its all-new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. No legal relief for San Diego businesses suing against the Purple Tier. That basically these places, when you have this amount of spread, really become major vectors. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego's South Bay is still fighting the toughest battle against coronavirus. We're telling communities, get out there and work, provide for us, uh, but if you get sick, well, good luck to you. Plans to extend the coastal rail line to the San Diego Convention Center, and then first up and up and now flat. The curious ways the pandemic has affected San Diego home prices. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu. Two San Diego restaurants and two local gyms have lost their bid to have purple tier restrictions lifted. The businesses asked a San Diego judge for a temporary restraining order to allow them to resume indoor operations. But Judge Kenneth Medell ruled yesterday that the restrictions appear, quote, to have general support in science and reason. He denied the request, even while acknowledging the economic harm the closures are inflicting. Joining me is KPBS reporter Max Rivlin Nadler. Max, welcome. Hi. Now, tell us about the businesses filing this lawsuit and what they hope to achieve. So, the businesses filing the lawsuit include the gyms and the restaurants. One is a CrossFit gym, the others are a bar restaurant. All of them had gone along with the previous restrictions involving um, lower occupancy, social distancing, wearing masks, things like that. Um, but they decided that when it came to the purple tier, which would, uh, in the gym's case, bar all indoor operations and for the restaurant's case, make them move entirely outdoors, that this was actually a, a bridge too far for them at this moment. And that basically because no widespread um, outbreaks had occurred at their establishments, there was no reason for them to close. So is there argument against the purple tier restrictions that they're challenging the idea that indoor operations threaten public health? Yeah, so they actually went back and looked at the record and saw what the county uh, health department was saying, especially Dr. Wilma Wooten's own words, where she said, you know, the spread as of a few weeks ago was not coming out of restaurants and gyms. It was coming out of uh, social gatherings. It was coming out of large parties. It was coming out of people having to keep going back to work. Um, and that basically restaurants and gyms at that time could stay open. Obviously, things changed. Uh, because the spread really precipitously took off at the beginning of November. And now, as we're seeing record numbers, um, the state obviously feels the need to start dialing back what's allowed. Even if they can't point at restaurants and gyms specifically, they know from science that basically these places, when you have this amount of spread, really become major vectors. 
And I suppose that, in essence, is the state's argument in support of keeping indoor operations closed. Yeah, I mean, the state right now is in untrodden territory. The pandemic has never been worse, even during our summer, uh, you know, kind of that was the first wave in California during the summer, Uh, you never saw something uh, with the numbers that we're seeing now and the amount of spread that's happening. So the state, again, purple tier, I think is kind of the beginning of the steps that they're going to be taken. But there's more on the horizon as we see uh, case numbers continue to increase and hospitals begin to fill up. The judge in this case basically um, acknowledged that under, you know, regular times, this would be an undue burden on the businesses, but because of the extraordinary times that we're living in, that the county is going to have to make tough decisions about what's allowed to operate. What's the next step in this legal battle? So this was just for a temporary restraining order to make sure that the purple tier restrictions are peeled back. Now the plaintiffs are entitled to a hearing on a preliminary injunction. And that's something that the judge, even during the hearing, showed that they were interested in having. We'll basically continue to hear as the pandemic progresses why these need to be rolled back for these businesses and and basically set precedent for a challenge against the state's orders statewide. The judge was not closing the door on the fact that the pandemic could take a different path that, you know, basically more science could come in about these places not being as serious vectors as county health administrators believe that they are. But, uh, you know, because they denied the temporary restraining order, it's a pretty high bar they're going to have to pass to get that preliminary injunction. And it remains to be seen whether the um, restaurants will continue their legal battle against these restrictions. I know, you know, one restaurant involved hasn't set up for outdoor dining at all. And that leaves them in a really bad place economically. And these lawsuits take money. This lawsuit was over the suspension of indoor operations for businesses like restaurants and gyms. But case rates are rising so fast in Los Angeles, that city is restricting outdoor dining and workouts. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? Yeah, like I was saying before, I think there are a lot more restrictions in the pipeline, right? Because one thing that these plaintiffs were arguing was that businesses like retail stores are still allowed to operate indoors. And these are non-essential businesses, you know, clothing stores, general retail, and they feel like this is unfair. But I don't know how long that's going to last for, especially when places like Los Angeles and San Francisco are beginning to look into stricter Uh, restrictions, ending things like outdoor dining, ending outdoor workouts. I mean, you could go around San Diego, gyms that have transition to outdoor um, working out, they're still very close to each other. Uh, And the science is still not necessarily sure when you have this amount of widespread uh, coronavirus. This is unprecedented, right? So uh, county health administrators are trying to keep up with this as much as possible. And people shouldn't be surprised if more restrictions come down in the pipeline. That being said, it puts such a huge burden on these businesses. County supervisors Nathan Fletcher And Greg Cox yesterday announced that they were proposing $20 million to go towards businesses that were impacted by these shutdowns. And they're going to vote on that. So it's moving relatively quickly. They're going to vote on that tomorrow at the County Board of Supervisors meeting. So there could be some relief in the pipeline for this. Nobody, I think, is ignoring the fact that these are really untenable restrictions being put on these businesses if they want to stay alive. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. And Max, thank you. Thank you.
Coronavirus cases are rising in San Diego, but the larger increases are happening among Latino communities in South Bay. Latinos account for 60% of all cases in San Diego County, where they are just a third of the population. KPBS reporter Shalina Chatlani says for many in low-income communities, health takes a back seat to the stress of putting food on the table. At a food donation stall outside a Sherman Heights home, an elderly man sifts through bags of dried black beans, rice, and onions. Onions are delicious when peeled and paired with a squeeze of lemon, the man says to volunteer Araceli Mauricio. Mauricio says many like this man have relied on these food stalls that have expanded across the South Bay region since the pandemic started. Mauricio says a lot of people who come here appreciate this help because they lost their jobs. Unemployment rates in places like National City are nearly double that of Del Mar and Poway. But it's not just unemployment that's surging. Compared to those northern cities, Imperial Beach and Chula Vista have on average three times the coronavirus case rate. She says a lot of people don't like wearing masks, but they still like having gatherings. And there's more. Mauricio says people are too worried about paying their rents or putting food on the table for their children. While they're concerned about their health, they are also scared that going to the clinic could lead to them missing a paycheck. Behind me are the hardest hit zip codes uh, of COVID-19 positive cases in the entire county, uh, Chula Vista, National City. Christian Ramirez is standing at the top of Grant Hill in Sherman Heights. He's the policy director for the labor union SEIU United Service Workers West. He says the community does have a lot of essential workers and businesses like grocery stores. Those stores keep the economy running, but workers are at high risk for contracting coronavirus. But, he says, those issues are part of a larger problem contributing to COVID cases here. And that's a historical lack of healthcare resources in low-income Latino communities. Not far from here is a, an abandoned hospital, for instance. That's where San Diego General Hospital shut down in 1991. And when you have a, a population of folks who have been left to fend for themselves for a long time without adequate services, then this happens. The Dartmouth Atlas of Healthcare Project found that 87% of the region's 7,000 hospital beds are in the city of San Diego and cities north of San Diego, leaving fewer than 900 total beds in South Bay cities. Ramirez says people in South San Diego County have always figured out a way to persevere, but with the pandemic... We're telling communities, get out there and work, provide for us, but if you get sick, well, good luck to you. I've worked very closely with the South County uh, elected officials. Greg Cox is the outgoing supervisor for District 1, which covers South Bay. County officials say spread is high in this region because of the concentration of essential workers. They also say cross-border traffic may contribute to higher rates. Cox says officials have reached out in Spanish and increased access to testing. We've got over 50 testing sites. On some days, we've had as many as 63 different testing sites. Cox says the county has tried to offer assistance for rent and food. We're doing everything we can. Can we do more? 
Yeah, we can. Incoming County Supervisor Nora Vargas agrees. Vargas is from the district and will be the first Latina woman to hold that seat. She says support must include practical solutions like financial assistance. It means uh, people have better opportunities to access, for instance, CalFresh, the EBT uh, emergency card so that people can have that access to that food right now. Vargas was an executive with Planned Parenthood for 20 years. She says it's important for county leaders to build trust It's not just an email and a text. It's actually getting out there in the community and having conversations. She says people in South Bay who are worried about feeding their families won't be able to focus on their health care, especially if those health care resources are scarce. Joining me is KPBS reporter Shalina Chatlani. And Shalina, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Is there also some truth to the idea that for many of the reasons you outlined, South Bay residents tended to have more underlying health issues even before COVID? Sure, yeah. There's a lot of research that points towards communities in this area having more underlying health conditions like asthma. But it's important to note, um, and Christian Ramirez, who I interviewed in the feature, brought this up, which is that many of the health conditions in this community are a result of the community being so close to heavy industry and being closer to higher amounts of toxic air pollution, which can cause respiratory illnesses. Also, food insecurity can contribute to issues like diabetes. Also, think about stress, especially for people who live paycheck to paycheck. And we know that stress can increase risk for health problems like heart disease. So, yes, there are underlying conditions um, within this community, but it's also related to the to economic disparities. Now, the county, I know, has already launched COVID outreach programs aimed at the Latino community in the South Bay. They've uh, approached uh, this outreach with radio, online, TV ads, and they've increased testing sites, the sites that Supervisor Cox was talking about. Have the efforts had any impact? All of these efforts help. But what I'll note is that the county of San Diego really started intensifying that outreach um, at the end of July. And that's sort of after the fact, right? Like the pandemic really took hold in April. And by July, there were more than 24,000 confirmed coronavirus cases. Already at that point, 60% of those were among the Latino population. So these efforts are good, but some of my sources, like Christian Ramirez, say it's going to take much more than that, especially in a community that is already so distrustful of the government for a number of reasons. And that's what Nora Vargas, who's the incoming District 1 County Supervisor, said as well. She says, you know, it's not going to be just an email or a text or even just advertisements. It's about getting out into the community and actually talking to people and convincing them that it's okay for them to quarantine or it's okay for them to seek health services and it's not going to put them out of work. What kind of resources are available for people in National City, Chula Vista, and other South Bay communities, people who are struggling to pay rent and keep up their housing? The county did um, work to provide some relief in the early days. And of course, there's relief that, you know, came from the CARES Act. Um, But a lot of that is not very long lived um, and likely not enough for families that are living in South Bay. So uh, there was, you know, millions in rental assistance relief. But of course, that was over oversubscribed and it didn't last very long, only like held up rent for around two months or so. Um, and EBT cards already exist for needs like food, but folks that are undocumented or on DACA, which is a type of immigration status that allows you to stay in the U.S. legally, 
you, you can't get that relief um, if you have that immigration status. So a lot of people in this community are relying on help from their neighbors, from food stalls, like the ones that I had in my story. But others may be out of luck with issues like paying rent, because for those people, um, that, that type of aid may not exist. So they can reach out to the Legal Aid Society of San Diego to seek some help. Meanwhile, politicians like Nora Vargas are saying, we need to re-up financial assistance, more debit cards that can be more broadly available and can be used by more people. Yeah, as we head into Thanksgiving and the holidays, what are the concerns about the number of coronavirus cases increasing in the South Bay in particular? So from, you know, a scientific or healthcare perspective, we need to flatten the curve everywhere, not just South Bay in order for hospitals to be prepared to care for people who desperately need to be in the ICU or need ventilators. Um, So the hospital systems are connected. If there is a surge in one hospital, um, whether that's in South Bay or another part, those people are probably going to be asked to be transferred to another hospital. So everything is interrelated. Um, So at this point, we need to be concerned that people will not socially distance um, during the holiday season and that there will be more outbreaks and that will be too much for a hospital system to handle. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Shalina Chatlani. Shalina, thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia with its all-new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Allison St. John. On his first day in office, President-elect Joe Biden says he'll create a task force and is promising to reunite migrant families separated at the border by the Trump administration. But as KQED's Michelle Wiley reports, that will be easier said than done. At the final presidential debate in October, Biden strongly condemned the Trump policy that led border agents to take children away, to prosecute parents, and deter migration. Their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. And now they cannot find over 500 sets of those parents, and those kids are alone. In fact, it's a lot more than 500 families. Since Trump took office, more than 5,000 children have been separated. And while thousands of parents have been located, that leaves many, many kids still in limbo over three years later. As part of a lawsuit settlement, advocates and lawyers are still trying to find parents who lost their kids in 2017. Often the only way is through lengthy searches on the ground in Central America because the government didn't keep track of families and hasn't provided good contact numbers. So we couldn't even begin the searches, uh, you know, by phone, trying to contact these families. That's ACLU lawyer Lee Gallant, who represents the parents in the ongoing lawsuit against the Trump administration. Biden has said he'll prioritize reunifying these families, but so far he hasn't offered details. Gallant says there are some things that would help, like allowing parents deported without their kids to return to the U.S. legally. They have been through so much, and I think the least we can do now is to provide them with some status. He also suggested the government create a fund for the families to get trauma counseling and other health care. 
And, he says, Biden should stop the separations that are still happening. The federal judge who blocked Trump's original policy has allowed border officials to take kids when they believe a parent is unfit or a danger. That's happened to more than 1,100 children. Sometimes, Gallant says, for minor reasons. We do not want the types of separation decisions that occur under the Trump administration made by CBP and ICE officials where they are unilaterally declaring without evidence most of the time that the parent is a a danger to the child. He and other advocates say separation decisions should be based on child welfare standards and more recently separated families should be included in the lawsuit. But even families who had some legal protection from the case are still suffering as a result of the Trump policies and the terrible choices they were forced to make. Erica Pinero is the director of litigation for Al Otro Lado, a California nonprofit working on behalf of immigrant families. She told the story of a Guatemalan man who came to the U.S. with his seven-year-old son to seek asylum in 2018. The boy was taken from him at the border, and though the man suffered violence and discrimination back home, Pinero said it was unlikely he would qualify for protection. He ultimately made the painful decision to accept deportation while his son stayed in the U.S. with an aunt. So the only choices are bring your child back to a situation where you are receiving deadly threats or leave them in the United States um, and potentially never see them again. Despite the difficult task ahead, Pinero's hopeful that Biden is committed to repairing the damage. We see a definite opportunity with the Biden administration, much more of an opportunity than we would have had with the Trump administration, whose DOJ was fighting reunifications every step of the way. But, she says, it remains to be seen who will be on the next president's task force and how far they're willing to go to make these families whole again. I'm Michelle Wiley. Catching the train to the San Diego Convention Center could be a possibility within five years under a new plan that would extend the coaster beyond the current terminus at the Santa Fe Depot. The so-called Low San Rail Corridor through Los Angeles and San Diego is the second busiest rail corridor in the country. If extended, people from Los Angeles or North County could buy a ticket to the Padres game or Comic-Con and arrive on the doorstep of those events by train. Tony Krantz is chair of the North County Transit District Board. Tony, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So now there's actually a lot of uh, things happening at the railway line down the San Diego coastline, isn't there? The number of trains going up and down is expected to double. How often will trains run and how soon could that happen? Well, the Los Angeles Corridor has uh, been in, in existence since the 1880s and And as it has evolved, there are currently three major uses of that corridor. One is freight. The other is inner city, which is our Pacific Surfliner operated by uh, the state. And then finally, the line that the service that North County Transit District operates, which is the coaster running from Oceanside down into San Diego. And that is known as a commuter rail. And it will be, our goal is to have uh, service during peak hours, which is the morning and evening commute times of 30-minute headways. And then off-peak times would uh, have trains every running every hour. So we've recently purchased some new train sets, 
and are getting new locomotives and refurbishing our existing coach cars so that we can provide this service. Uh, it had been planned pre-pandemic, and so we've had some changes uh, as we're working our way through the, the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And um, it is our hope that as the vaccine is implemented throughout the county that we'll see some more ridership increases and and then we will increase the service levels. So you're saying they could be every half hour at peak times and every hour uh, other times. How soon could that happen? We have enough of the new locomotives to get started on the uh, improved service times, uh, but we do require two new train sets, which I believe are scheduled to be in uh, in 2022. Okay, so for people who say the ridership has dropped, especially during COVID, and there's no need for this, how would you respond to that? Well, I would respond that it's the old proverbial chicken or egg argument, which which comes first. Um, I think having uh, the proper time schedule and headways is a critical part of attracting ridership. And uh, I do believe that there are people that are more than willing to ride the coaster service if it was a more dependable service in terms of uh, being able to uh, plan your day around a, a service that runs more frequently. So I am in the camp that says public transportation is a critical part of a, a region that is capable of moving people around it and improving the service is really important to me as well as I think everybody on the North County Transit District Board agrees that um, these are important improvements that we need to continue to work towards. Okay, so the plan is to extend it to the convention center. Right now it stops at the uh, historic Santa Fe Depot at the foot of Broadway. A lot of people in North County would like to see an extension to the airport, but the plan instead is to the convention center. Why is that? You know, as I mentioned, the, the rail line has been uh, was built in the 1880s. Uh, you know, the old land grant history of uh, the essentially very good deals for the railroad men that were operating at the time. And what we're doing is we're taking, you know, we're using the existing corridor to expand our services. The reality is that there is currently no right away to the airport for coaster trains. And so um, the ability to expand to the airport would be limited by the cost that it would would uh, be to acquire the right of way to operate over there. There is talk about running trolley service directly to the airport, but right now the shuttle services that uh, take passengers from the terminals to the rental car facility, I think is a excellent opportunity to extend that shuttle service to Old Town and uh, pick up coaster riders at Old Town so that Uh, they could conveniently get to the airport by the shuttle service. Um, There is currently a MTS bus 992 that runs from the Santa Fe Depot over to the airport, and it is not a difficult ride. The challenge currently that we have with airport service by the coaster is that we don't have trains that run frequently enough, so it's really not very convenient to try and plan a trip to the airport by rail. Although that could change when the number of trains increase, of course. That is our goal, yes. So once we once we increase frequencies, we think there will be more people that will exercise the option to take public transit to the airport. And, you know, they may use 992, but I think, again, that, that the possibility of extending the shuttle bus that serves the car rental facility would 
be even more attractive because it would allow people to get off the train at, at Old Town instead of continuing the ride, which is not a long ride. It's about five minutes further to go from Old Town to the Santa Fe Depot. But you, as you're traveling by train past the airport, it's a little frustrating if you're late for your flight or that sort of thing. So I just think it would be beneficial to be able to get off at Old Town and, and have the option of, of taking a shuttle bus, which uh, those shuttle buses travel on the inside of airport property, so they're not fighting with traffic on Harbor Drive and that sort of thing. So it's, uh, I think, going to be a little bit more of an advantage. There is a trolley line currently running to the convention center. Why can't people just catch the trolley there? Well, I think that, you know, the uh, Santa Fe Depot is very busy, and most people riding public transit prefer to have a single seat to their destination. So, um, anybody considering a trip from North County down to the Gas Lamp or the Convention Center or to Petco Park for a Padres game or a concert is going to, you know, think twice probably before deciding to take the coaster because of the need to find that extra ride to get to those destinations. So once you eliminate the need for finding a second seat to get to your final destination, you will attract more riders. And there, the railroad is currently there. It's a pass-through for Burlington Northern Santa Fe freight trains that go as far south as uh, National City. So it's it's not like we're adding new track. It's like there will be an improvement of track. And the proposal is to put the platform basically is the only thing that's missing so that people can get on and off uh, the coaster trains. And that would be between First and Fifth Avenues and and make riding the coaster from North County much more convenient. We've been speaking with Tony Krantz, chair of the board of the North County Transit District. Tony, thank you so much. Thank you. COVID-19 has affected the housing market in some counterintuitive ways. Prices in San Diego of homes continued their upward climb for the most part during the quarantine. But recent figures suggest San Diego County home prices stalled last month. Here to talk about whether this is a trend that will continue or what analysts predict for the uncertain coming months in San Diego is Union Tribune reporter Phil Molnar. Phil, welcome to Midday. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, let's start with the, the, the median price of a home in San Diego last month. That's for all homes, you know, condos, single-family townhomes. What was the average? That's right. So the the median home price was $650,000, which was kind of interesting because that's the same price it was last month. And, you know, in San Diego, it's kind of funny because something small like this that happens is a big deal where maybe if you're in Minnesota or Michigan, it's not that big of a deal. You know, sort of we wrote a few months ago how rent prices had only gone up about or they were flat about zero percent. And that was a big story that rent prices hadn't gone up that much. So this is sort of in that same vein because San Diego home prices have been shooting up like crazy all year, especially since the pandemic began. So it was kind of shocking to see in October that we didn't see this gigantic jump again. Yeah. So what do you think was behind that? So I think, according to a lot of the experts I talked to, is that our home prices went up so rapidly in July, August, September, October. It just finally slowed down a little bit to catch up. However, what I will say is a lot of the analysts are expecting home prices to increase still in the next coming months because a lot of the same factors are still present that have driven home prices to record territory. 
Uh, I just wanted to talk about single-family homes, which the median price is 730000 which is pretty high. How is that trending, and what would the average monthly mortgage be for that? Oh, my God. Well, there's a lot of different ways to look at how much, how much it could cost. But, yes, yeah, 730000 just to keep in mind, that is the highest that it's been in all time in San Diego for a resale single-family home. And if you looked at the monthly cost of a mortgage, assuming 20% down, which is very hard to do, 30-year fixed rate loan, that would be around $2,430 a month for your mortgage payment. Now, if you looked at that about a year ago and you looked at what the median home price was then compared to the interest rates then, it's only up a little bit. So it would have been about $2,390 a month last year at this time. So... The monthly payment for a home is sort of around the same area. The only problem, though, is your 20% down payment would be now $130,000 compared to $114,000 about the same time last year. It does seem like in this pandemic, the, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Is that reflected in the, in the price of luxury homes in San Diego? Are they whizzing up faster? Luxury homes still are kind of going up slower, but sort of what you said about like the haves and the have-nots, we're seeing that at an extreme level in San Diego because our economy is so, we have so many jobs in tourism and restaurants, and those folks have been hit harder than ever. Whereas we see this other side of the market, if you're able to work from home and you've kept your job and you may have some ties to the stock market, you're doing really well. And those are the kind of people that are buying houses in this market. The people that were working paycheck to paycheck, even before the pandemic, they were not in the home market to begin with and are very high prices here in San Diego. And they're kind of left out from this entire conversation. Well, obviously, a lot has changed since last month. How could the news of a change of the administration in Washington, D.C., you know, a new president, affect the housing market here? There are a lot of policies from President-elect Joe Biden that could make things a little more in favor of renters. It sort of depends on what happens with the Senate. If it's going to be Democrat control or Republican control, he might have difficulty passing a lot of it. But what I will say is a lot of his policies could benefit renters. The biggest one is he wants to extend the expansion of Section 8, which is housing vouchers for very low renters. So in San Diego, about 16,000 households receive Section 8 every year, but there are 80,000 households on the waiting list. So one of his things is to really expand Section 8 so that could pump up a lot of money into the rental market. He's also proposed a renter's tax credit, and that is sort of interesting. I'm not totally sure how it's going to play out if it gets passed, but it's sort of based on a policy idea out of a housing program at UC Berkeley, which basically says if you're a household spending more than 30% of your income on rent and utilities, you would receive a tax credit when you file your return. Now, what we know about San Diego County is there's a lot of people even up to 25% that are spending more than half their income on rent. So this could have a big impact on the fortunes of renters in San Diego County. 
Right. Of course, rent depends on the the price of the home that the landlord has bought. And and if those prices keep going up, that's pressure on rent. Just going back to the changes, what would the appearance of vaccines on the horizon do to the housing market? Well, the housing market, it's sort of similar to the stock market in that it's forward thinking. So in some ways, one way you could look at it is because we don't really know how it's all going to play out. But one thing is it could give potential home buyers more confidence in the market and be more willing to buy a home, knowing that they're not presumably going to die or get really sick. However, another way it could react, which I think some potential home buyers would be happy about, is right now one of the things driving up prices is we have very few homes on the market. In, in the month we're talking about right now, there was around 5,000 houses, at, which is just crazy considering we're the fifth largest county in America. It's a very, very slow amount of homes for sale. So one of the reasons we don't have a lot of listings is a lot of people that were looking to sell their home have held off in this environment because they don't want a bunch of potential buyers with presumably COVID-19 walking through their house. You know, it's very cautious way to look at it, but that's one thing we're seeing is still a lot of sellers. I talk to real estate agents all the time. A lot of sellers are just waiting to put their homes on the market because they don't want those people coming through, or they might incorrectly be thinking that they can't get enough for their house, but you could get a lot for your house right now. Well, Phil, thanks for keeping such a close eye on this for us. Thank you so much. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. A new project called Sounds of California is collecting music and cultural expression from across the state. It's spearheaded by the Alliance for California Traditional Arts in conjunction with the Smithsonian. They commissioned 10 original songs from local artists about Boyle Heights, a longtime immigrant neighborhood east of downtown Los Angeles that's been gentrifying. The California Report magazine host Sasha Coca talks with musician Quetzal Flores, who's been helping to curate the project. Boyle Heights is a community of immigrants. Since its inception, you had these communities that literally could not live anywhere else and had to live in Boyle Heights or Compton or other parts of, of the city that were designated for that through redlining. So when we look at what's happening in Boyle Heights and how 
the economic powers within the city of Los Angeles are positioning themselves to gentrify Boyle Heights, to displace people, to prey on economic opportunity in a place that, that has been the sanctuary. You know, there's this history of defiance and resistance to power, to the oppressive tactics of capitalism, of patriarchy and white supremacy. These are songs where you're commissioning work by artists from the community about their community. I'm thinking about the song by Erika Organista called Their Landing. even really specific street corners in Boyle Heights, specific establishments, but it, it also chronicles a, a migration story from Tijuana to Boyle Heights. Edika's story is the story of many people that live in Boyle Heights right now, and so she really was able to tell her personal story, the story of her family, the story of her parents arriving from Tijuana, being homeless in the city and looking for a place and finding home in Boyle Heights. So much of the narrative that's been told about Boyle Heights is that, oh, it's just a community of poor people and there's gangs there and bad schools. And when we're able to control that narrative and tell our own narrative, and you put the narrative in the hands of artists, they tell beautiful stories. They tell powerful stories of deep connection, deep history, and also uh, resilience. There's a great story that I was told by a friend where a Eastern European woman would walk by my friend's house every day. One day she stopped and she said, hey, little girl, come here. What is that smell? I pass by your house every day and that smell, it just reels me in. She says, oh, my mom's making tortillas. So she brought her a tortilla with some butter on it. The woman was like, this is incredible. Can we exchange? I make sour cream. I will bring you a, a batch of sour cream every week and you give me tortillas and we'll exchange. And these two women became best friends and comadres and, and you know, were connected for the rest of their lives. Boyle Heights is a place of bridges Stories crossing, stories never end Well, there's a song in this collection that captures some of that cross-cultural connection between communities from Nobuko Miyamoto. So Nobuko is an 80-year-old Japanese-American. When she was a very young girl, she and her family were incarcerated during the incarceration of Japanese-Americans by the U.S. government. And so coming out of camp, they landed in Boyle Heights. Four years they get us and now we're back to start from zero mom's happy sewing curtains stitching up a home seeing her mother restitch their lives back together healing from the trauma of of being forcibly removed and incarcerated nobuko was a, a trained dancer who landed in broadway and did many musicals and uh landed a part also in west side story she is an elder, a community elder, and she holds a very important perspective, the cross-generational dialogue within these compositions. That was going to be key 
right? So we have someone like Angelica Matas, who's in her early 20s. That's a pretty broad uh, uh, perspective there. From all over the world come to see well, let's talk about Angelica Mata's song, Mariachi Plaza. It's, it's one of the songs in this collection that's bilingual, both in English and Spanish. And it also blends different genres of music. In lovely Boyo. So Angelica is the child of two prominent mariachis in Los Angeles. She can go from this very sort of lush, ballad-like uh, introduction and then into this mariachi piece that has that fervor and that intensity and that pride. Her tradition, her main tradition is mariachi music, but she's a lover of all kinds of music. She loves Brazilian music, she loves jazz. And then lyrically, you know, she loves her neighborhood. And oftentimes what happens in the process of gentrifying a community, there's an erasure of culture and the people to really center the culture that exists now and the people is a way of reaffirming our existence. It's the mirror that people can look at and say to themselves, I matter, I have value, and my value is not determined by how much money I make, but instead all of the deep, deep connections that I have to people in this neighborhood and the sounds that remind me that I belong here. Quetzal Flores from the Alliance for California Traditional Arts. The Sounds of California Project will launch a public archive in the spring where you can hear sounds from many vibrant communities across the state. Meanwhile, you can check out the songs from Boyle Heights. We've got a link at our website, californiareport.org. That was California Report Magazine host Sasha Coca. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how.